Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. On this episode, we have Guido von Reisingham. Uh, he is an athletic trainer and also a registered nurse and has done a little bit of everything. I've discovered Guido through Performance Place podcast uh, with Dr. Seb Gonzalez. Uh, really enjoyed listening to him talk about dynamic systems theory and really looking at injury and athletic movement in a very different way than I am especially used to. Uh, but it seems to be something that we're, is like the evolution that is occurring within the profession and just in general. We're not getting so laser focused on one specific thing, but looking at a much broader picture of what could potentially be going on uh, with an injury and an athlete. In this episode, we talked about proprioception, and we got so far into it, we didn't get a chance to talk about anything else, which is perfect. Uh, I thought it was fascinating, uh, just a different way to look at things, and maybe that we just haven't looked at it how it should be in the past. I know I haven't in particular. Uh, we talked about that. We didn't even get to the athletic training chat questions, and we've got to get another episode scheduled up once Guido is back from all his travels to talk about dynamic systems theory and just, again, how this works in terms of training athletes. So with that, I leave you with Guido and this extremely interesting conversation about proprioception. we are recording so i will get started and we can just hop into it okay perfect so welcome to this episode of athletic training chat we're on with guido van reisingham and i'm sure i butchered that and i remember dr sub doing the same thing so i'll let him correct that um but he is an athletic trainer a registered nurse also a certified strength and conditioning specialist among a list of multiple other things that i saw in just looking around um but we are going to talk proprioception and I am fully prepared to have my mind blown on what that actually means and in just some talking before this to do away with some balance boards and balance pads and different things like that. Um, but I can't wait to see what we, where we go with this and the information you have. But, you know, if you'd like to give some more background on kind of how you got to where you're at and then we can jump right in. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks, Joel. It's a it's a great honor for me to be here on your podcast. Um, I've heard some great things about you and what you're doing in your arena, and then uh, your love of spreading knowledge and and uh, scientific evidence, uh, especially for our uh, colleagues, the athletic trainers, and of course, other clinicians. So, how I get into proprioception? Well, this is probably about 12, 13 years ago maybe a little bit longer uh, as the internet started, you know, popping up and, and people were starting using it more for social media reasons. I started noticing that a lot of individuals were, uh, were using or proclaiming they were using balance exercises and then claiming it would improve proprioception. And then I also noticed that if you would go on YouTube and you type in balance exercises and then another YouTube you type in proprioceptive exercises they're the same and so it doesn't make any sense to me that two different things can be the same so I think uh, and we'll go through that here and 
probably the next half hour, maybe longer. I think there's a lot of misconception uh, by many individuals of what really proprioception is and where really balance uh, is. And then, of course, what the exercises are, assessments, et cetera, et cetera. I was still working at Oregon State University at that point, and I had an international student that was with me. His name is Dean Kim. He's currently living in uh, Canada, very intelligent young man, and he wanted to have a project. So he had a year time to do a project with me. So the project I gave him was a review of literature on what really balance and what really proprioception is. And I gave him a bunch of stuff to read and a bunch of links for him to get into. And he did a phenomenal job uh, getting, you know, doing great review of literature on this. And then uh, actually together, uh, we have uh, published a paper on it. It's called The Myth of Proprioception. And it's published in the International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy. Uh, since then, I've been invited multiple times worldwide on presenting on this concept. Number one, number two, uh, doing also workshops on this. So uh, I developed basically not only a paper, but also a PowerPoint presentation. Some of them are short, like 50 minutes, and other ones are uh, literally four days, seven days workshops, weekend workshops. Actually, uh, I, I have a presentation that I'm going to do in Vail, Colorado at the Mountain Con Conference. So it's run by J.C. Cole. He is their uh, performance director. This is a private school in Vail, Colorado, where our elite American uh, sport, uh, sorry, winter sport athletes are uh, being trained from a very young age. And John has been a great uh, fan of, of, of my work, including movement variability as well, which I've done several workshops on and presentations uh, as well. So this time he invited me uh, to present right after Mark Verstegen. I mean, I can't think of any you know greater honor for that. We are a big fan of him around here. Uh, <laughs> we model a lot of our SP, our sports performance off of the Exos model. Just makes too much sense. Excellent. So yeah, Mark and I actually go way back before Exos existed, before even Athletes Performance, which was the first company he founded existed. Uh, when I worked for the Baltimore Orioles, he uh, was at the Boletary Institute and was their performance director. So Mark and I go way back. When we still had hair and the hair we have left wasn't gray. <laughs> it's that long ago. But anyhow, uh, so I'm presenting there for uh, it's just 50 minutes, but just to give him a short kind of an idea, you know, what, what I think proprioception really is and what should be uh, challenged if we assume we can improve proprioception. Because at, at this point, it's still pretty much of an assumption. You know, a lot of people think we can improve proprioception. But if you look at the literature of it, it's probably unlikely. But there are factors associated by, by proprioception as also balance that can be improved, which, you know, I will discuss here in a minute. Uh, after that, I'm actually flying straight to uh, Seattle, uh, which will be uh, May 4th, 5th, where I will do a workshop uh, uh, with Michael Lee uh, for a majority of clinicians as also non-clinicians on my movement optimization model, which includes proprioception and a lot more than that. That's a project that I've put together for the last, oh shoot, 12, 14 years. Uh, just, you know, looking at my experiences and, and, and my learnings and, and, and the, 
and, and the learning from, from many other people, uh, I've basically set up my own system on how to, let's call it correct movement uh, after injury, uh, when performing repetitive movements, and also for people that live a sedentary lifestyle and want to become active. Uh, then also I'll have a proprioception uh, workshop in uh, San Francisco. Uh, this is June 8th, 9th, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, it'll be the first time in the California area that I do a workshop on it. Uh, predominantly will be clinicians there, uh, tons of athletic trainers, physical therapists, chiropractors. So that's kind of that. So now that you know how I got into proprioception, and how I got interested into, you know, what's the difference between proprioception and balance. Let's delve a little bit deeper into it. So if you look at the literature and you look at history, and as you already know, I'm a history buff, one of my quotes often is, if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going. Right. So my students know that I'm a, you know, I keep pounding it into their head that most likely there's not a lot of new things that we can come up with. I mean, you know, we have new things like kettlebells, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, it's just overload. The techniques might have changed a little bit, but the general concept have not changed at all. Uh, probably the only thing in the last 20, 30 years, if not longer, that is new to expose our body is vibration. And so I have a whole workshop on that as well. Whole body vibration, the effect on, on strength, power, reinforced development, and then, of course, rehabilitation, et cetera, et cetera. The rest is old school. We just keep reinventing stuff. That's it. And often then, because of the, our reinvention strategies, we get a little confused, and sometimes we get off the reservation, and we start assuming that certain things are happening, and that's not necessarily so. So what is balance? Where is this coming from? Well, if you go back into the literature and into the history, it's basically acrobatics. So people doing crazy things on bicycles, et cetera, et cetera. If you look now at the literature of proprioception, where, where is that coming from? It's basically coming from sensory motor rehabilitation experts. So these were physical therapists, and these were nurses that worked with kids with polio, et cetera, et cetera. And they wanted to make sure that these kids were able to relearn to walk and do simple things like going to the bathroom and so forth. And like I already said, we, we need to go back into the history so where is the word proprioceptors now coming from? Well, proprioceptors is actually those same rehabilitation experts and those after them more recently have started using the word proprioceptive nerve endings. So as we started getting smarter, I started realizing that we have, let's call it sensory organs in our skin, muscle, fascia, tendons, ligaments, etc., even bone. We started using the words that were discovered by these researchers and made, basically made verbs out of it. So proprioceptors were kind of found in anatomical structures. And then suddenly we see in the literature words popping up like proprioceptive exercises. Assuming that we can augment proprioceptive acuity or sensitivity in those that had an injury. So a lot of people claim doing balance exercises post-ankle sprain is going to basically improve the proprioceptive sensitivity or returning of normal proprioceptive sense. But we should wonder, is that really possible? If these tissues are damaged and those receptors have been damaged and probably also destroyed upon full tearing of, let's say, a ligament, is it possible 
that we can now restore them to, let's call it normal, or let them restore to, you know, the, the pre-injury state. Then worst of all, I think, is more recently, we see the same methodologies popping up in exercise professionals or strength coaches or personal trainers, let's say. Now, they're basically claiming that their exercises is augmenting non-damaged receptors. So we should wonder, is that really possible? So can we augment receptors uh, that are not damaged? And can we make them basically, you know, improve doing their job? So that's what I basically started digging into. Now, the worst part also is that if you go into the research, a lot of researchers, and on my slides I just show a couple of, of the studies that were done, you know, these are, you know, smart individuals, right, are claiming that their exercise interventions in their research study, which are balanced exercises, is improving proprioception, but without any proof whatsoever. They're basically saying an apple and a pear is fruit. Well, that might be so, but, you know, we need to, we need to, be, we need to become a little bit more clear on that is that really possible? Is that really true? So a lot of assumptions are being made and scary enough, even by researchers. Mm -hmm. So at this point, a lot of people believe that proprioception is improving balance. Balance is improving proprioception. And that basically, in somewhat a way, they're the same. And so I digged in deeper and basically... The synopsis of my whole presentation is the following. Balance is a skill. So like any skill, we can get better at it. If I throw darts and I suck at it, or I practice, I'm going to get better at throwing darts. But proprioception is a sense. So the question now is, can we improve a sense? So similarly, can we improve taste? Can we improve smell? Now, some people have, you know, responded to that and basically told me, hey, I took this wine tasting class. That's and now, yeah, <laughs> now when I taste wine or I drink wine, I can differentiate certain flavors, you know, oaky flavor, cherry flavor, whatever. Well, my response to that is, is the following. Well, the instructor associated flavors and gave it basically a concept. So you have a Neuro representation of oaky flavor. So for you and I, Joel, oaky flavor is something totally different. It's not the same. It's based on your experience, what you taste as oaky. And my right. experience is going to be different. And so it's not a surprise that, you know, on a yearly basis, sometimes relatively inexpensive wines are being selected as the best wines in the world by blindfolded expert tasters. And so... In my opinion and others, senses cannot improve. Now, that's interesting, right? One thing can improve and the other one can't. Mm -hmm. So now we need to delve into what's really balance and what's really proprioception, and do they have a relationship and what is it? So an interesting uh, paper that I found wasn't really a research study was that in 1941, the U.S. wanted to prepare over 1.3 million U.S young men to get uh, to, to be prepared for basic training to get to the battlefields in Europe. And they wanted to come up with one simple or maybe more than one simple test to identify which of these young men 
would be able to withstand the rigors of basic training. Think, think about it, 1941, they had to transport these young men from all over the country. It wasn't as simple as now just jump on a plane. You know, they came by train, they drove by car, Greyhound bus, et cetera, et cetera. It must have been an absolute logistic nightmare. And if a certain amount of percentage of these young men would not pass basic training, then obviously there was a tremendous loss of resources, time, and so forth, and they had to send them back home. So they wanted to come up with something very, very simple, something you could do on a relatively big scale. And guess what? It was standing on one foot with your eyes closed. Now, it's balance, right? Now, what, what did they see? 1941, the Amram could do this for about 30 seconds or longer. Even those that, could, that were not involved in physical hard labor, they work in a factory picking up heavy stuff, they work on a farm, they work on a ranch, and they definitely were not athletes. Those that were physically, uh, physically uh, trained to their job, the ranchers, the farmers, the guys that loaded up trucks, let's say, they can do this on average for a minute. And the athletes were able to do this for average two minutes. Now, I challenge you to pick out your best athlete in your favorite sport right there in your school. Let them close their eyes and see how long they can do this. Well, what we notice, this is not scientific evidence, but any time I go to a country and any time I do a workshop on proprioception or I mention balance, most people cannot do this for longer than 30 seconds, even athletes. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe it's just a pure coincidence, but I think we're seeing a deprivation of simple things like standing on one foot. So, it's, and that's not even injured populations. So I think it's really necessary that we know more about what balance and perception is because there's a clear difference between, let's say, your grandfather when he was 18 and let's say you when you were 18 years old. We lose, I would call, our sense with our surrounding environment. That's our clothing, our shoes, the, the surface we stand on, the carpets, et cetera, et cetera. And the non-variability exposure. I have a grandson. He's almost three years old. And he's my little guinea pig. So I take him out everywhere. And it's fascinating to see that this little guy can do so many things that a lot of adults cannot do, even if they call themselves athletes. Right. He's fearless, climbs on the things, climbs off the things, et cetera, et cetera. And I think once it gets get older, we lock them up. They sit in front of a TV in my days. These days, it's now in front of a laptop or an iPad. We, we lock them up in a classroom, and they need to behave and sit still, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if I travel to countries like I mentioned before, like Kyrgyzstan, Nepal, Namibia, uh, and we, uh, we have experienced local populations. I ask them, once they get you know, kind of comfortable with me, to stand on one foot, barefoot. They can stand for more than one minute with mm -hmm. their eyes closed. So if I go to Beijing, it's the same problem. But if I go to rural China, again, those farmers, the rice paddy workers in uh, Myanmar, uh, uh, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, where my wife and I were uh, years, several years ago, they can do these things like no problem. So we need to know more about this phenomenon because we're seeing an epidemic, I would call it, 
in lack of movement control or what I often refer to as movement repertoire or uh, you know we just we just can't handle very simple things so anyhow it just got me more and more fascinated in this also we all know that the typical definition of balance is just too static you know meaning standing on one foot center of support base of support blah 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 balance is dynamic even when you stand on one foot you're swaying in multiple directions now this is basically in my opinion and others your central nervous system exploring how far it can sway so I don't know if you've heard of Bernstein and basically the guy that first looked at movement variability from a research perspective he noticed that blacksmiths every time they hit the iron with their hammer that every strike was different uh, now unfortunately when he did his research uh, there was Pavel also a researcher you know with dogs mm -hmm. and he was a lot more popular in the USSR and basically Bernstein was put on the side until relatively recent as his work started to get translated into English uh, we started to learn more and more and more about a you know pretty phenomenal researchers in the USSR years ago so we need to understand that balance is not static it's dynamic well if it is dynamic then it is a form of motor control. It's controlling your posture in space. It doesn't matter what you do, stand on one foot, reaching forward, hitting a tennis ball or a golf ball, it's controlling your posture from a relatively static position to very dynamic positions as we see in our athletes. And so we as athletic trainers, we cannot just copy our physical therapists, colleagues, protocols. They often do not work with our populations. They often don't have the time, insurance uh, limitations, etc., to actually get to the point where they fully can return a person to, to full activity, especially athletes into full activity. So I think as athletic trainers and any clinician or any, I would say, strength coach that is involved in returning athletes to full activity need to delve into this a lot deeper because as some research has shown these postural changes post-injury do not return to normal even years after they retire from their sport even years after they had let's say back surgery even years after after they had even very comprehensive rehabilitation so there's a lack of restoring that normal postural control in a lot of individuals. And so I do workshops not only on, uh, for people that work with athletes, but also with non-athletes. So if it is dynamic, then it's also specific to the task. And so our so-called balance exercises, which I prefer to call now postural control exercises, need to actually mimic as closely as possible in our scenario as athletic trainers, the sport activity that your athlete needs to return into. So standing on a BOSU ball is not gonna do the trick. And we can get into that a little bit deeper, but these unstable platform training methodologies is questionable if they actually are in, if they actually can restore this normal postural control just purely because the surface they're standing on is not identical to the surface they need to perform on. Right. Now, your little 
pad that they stand on might mimic somewhat uh, the environment they use outside if they play on, let's say, a grassy surface. But the BOSU ball is so unstable that you're actually training stability. So you're forcing now the central nervous system to stabilize itself. And I'm not saying that's bad, but that's not restoring postural control. So I see circus acts on YouTube and on Facebook that make me absolutely cringe. And <laughs> you know, the question is, why do we need to do this, right? On a especially again, us as athletic trainers, we have a limited time for athletes to return to full activity. Especially when I worked in professional baseball in those days, you know, an athlete's going to get released sometimes or be demoted if the return to full play takes too long. So if it's a post-ACL, you've got to get that athlete back as soon as possible, especially if he's so-called on the bubble, especially if he wants to become a free agent and then, you know, is basically hoping for a big long-term contract from another team. And so the time that we invest in our rehabilitation and return our athletes to full activity is absolutely critical, especially for those of us that work with those athletes. So <clears throat> if, now, if now balance should be called posture control, then we should also introduce our athletes to a variety of challenges initially within their rehabilitation program. So basically, how do I recognize this? I use a, a concept called the associative phase of learning. So when the athlete uh, self-corrects themselves during your therapeutic exercise, and you kind of see their eyes opening up, which I call the aha moment, and sometimes that's what they verbally express. Aha, uh -huh, now I feel it. Uh-huh, now I understand what you want me to do. I immediately progress their exercise to the next challenge. I still think we spend too much time in redundantly making our patients do repetitive activities. The brain gets lazy when we make them repeat certain things. It wants new challenges. So we need to be able to safely push our athletes as quickly as possible. So thereby, postural control needs to be maintained during specific positions. So if you, if you rehab a yoga instructor, yeah, they're going to be often in somewhat isometric stationary positions. But it also needs to be challenged around moving between parts. So I'm a basketball player. I need to be able to move from right to left, front to back, and so forth. And it needs to be also challenged in a feed forward and feed backwards mechanism. So what I mean by that is this. If I'm a baseball catcher and I see a guy stealing, trying to steal home plate, then I know I can anticipate what is coming. So I'm going to prepare myself for a potential collision at home plate. But if I get tackled from behind in soccer or let's say basketball, then I need to be able to retrain my patient to be able to absorb those postural control challenging positions as well. So basically, we need to incorporate all those different strategies in our rehabilitation protocols. And that can be a little bit of a challenge, but you know, ultimately, we need to kind of have a segmental approach to, uh, to take our athletes to these different uh, challenges, because that's what they're going to face. 
right on, on back when they return back to the athletic field. Now, let's switch over to proprioception. What is proprioception? Holy cow. <laughs> so, I'm going to ask you if you had a definition. Well, here's the problem. There are several definitions. Okay. And so if you look at the research on the, uh, the different definitions, there's quite a bunch of them. And the ones that I think have the most validity, I'll uh, quickly sum up here. Looking at my slides right now, because I'm not going to verbatim, you know, just rattle them off. So first of all, what we need to recognize is that proprioception, the ability to know where your joint is in space. Okay. That basically also means that post-injury, we need to be able to retrain our athlete to re-recognize or reposition those positions. So there's, of course, these are, of course, sports-specific. Now, years ago, about 20 years ago, when I was with the Baltimore Orioles, I read a paper on that, repositioning sense in the elbow of the elite Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball pitcher needs to be restored post-injury. Well, that's a nice little concept, but how the hell do you do that? Right. Now, in those days, we didn't have a lot of fancy equipment. So what I did was I uh, basically analyzed the biomechanical analysis of their pitching position when they were not hurt. So we had scouts, videotapes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There was a company out there called, I think they were called then Motion Capture. Okay. You can use them on an iPad, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Fantastic. Not expensive. Uh, uh, basically, I used the old videos. I ran it through Motion Capture. And then I used their goniometer, basically, to analyze elbow position, wrist position, shoulder position versus the trunk. Now, this is all kind of brute data, but at least I had somewhat of an idea. Before they were hurt, where was their elbow? Where was their hand? Where was their wrist? So what I did was I put in this athlete in front of a mirror. It was literally in our bathroom. <laughs> and uh, I basically repositioned their elbow, shoulder, and body as best as possible according to the data, their pre-injury data obtained. And then I used a piece of athletic tape. I would stand in front of the mirror. I kind of put it out in front of them, and I basically said, listen, when you see that this top of the tape is hitting the bottom of your elbow, you let me know. So I dropped it down. They said, right now. I taped it on the, on the mirror. Then I used another piece of tape where their forearm was. Then I made them close their eyes, return their arm, to let's say call it neutral or passive position, and then they had to reposition that position. Then they, because of the tape, they could see how much they were off. I made them correct that, close their eyes again, and repeat that activity over and over again until I saw that they could repeat it without, uh, you know, that it was repetitively repeated accurately. Now, this is no scientific evidence, but what I found was, first of all, when these guys were ready to throw, you know, tossing program, and we had our pitching coach, you know, help them to return to tossing and then eventually, of course, throwing long toss and then throw off the mound. Without me telling the pitching coach what I was doing rehab-wise, he told me, he said, 
I'm noticing these guys that you are working with are able to return to normal throwing mechanics sooner. Now, in professional baseball, time, again, is of essence. Mm -hmm. If I can shave off three weeks, a month, maybe more, of them return to play, that's freaking huge, right? Not only for the athlete, it's also right. for the organization. You know, they're, they're basically, with me in Sarasota, getting paid doing rehab versus getting paid and actually work, do their job, which is being a baseball player. Mm -hmm. So that whole concept of joint repositioning sense I found quite fascinating, and I use it a lot with my individuals uh, uh, ever since then, so more than 20 years. Now, of course, joint repositioning is sport and action-specific. So we as clinicians need to become very familiar with the biomechanics of the athletes we work with. You know, when did they release the ball? When does that foot get off the ground when they jump over the hurdle, et cetera, et cetera? If we cannot do this, sometimes time constraint, and I'm stereotypically thinking now, you're an athletic trainer in a high school and you're responsible for a ton of sports, uh -huh. then you need to be able to have a conversation with the coach or somebody needs to be able to help you with that because I think it's critical that we are aware of that. <clears throat> so because of the pitching coach and then also our pitching coordinator noticing that the athlete was able to return faster to throwing and pitching, I was able to kind of open the door and have a conversation with him. So now I'm learning from my pitching coaches, right? This is their living, is recognizing patterns. And basically that relationship helped me and it also helped them quite a bit. The next definition that we see in what is proprioception is called the ability to, to detect motion in a joint, often referred also as joint position sense. Now, in sports like Olympic weightlifting, for example, uh, I worked uh, with some Olympic weightlifters and uh, powerlifters as well. If you mention this to them, they get it right away. They say, of course, I need to know where the bar is, for example, when I'm snatching, when I'm doing overhead snatch or something like that. So we need to find a way to restore that as well. And considering if we work with elite individuals, that motor program is still there. It is still, you know, the central nervous system can tap into it. And I think we need to kind of create a, a, a way, open a gate for them to relearn as quickly as possible where that sense is. The next part of the definition that I think we should not ignore is muscle sensory information. So driven by Golgi tendon organ muscle spindles, for example, perception of joint movement and velocity, especially if we work with athletes that need to produce high levels of velocity or need to be able to explosively move you know, in one or multiple directions. And then the next thing we should also recognize the sum, the sum of sensory information about limb, trunk, head, head position, and movement. Now, that's a lot of factors. And unfortunately, nobody within the research has ever been able to put all those factors together. So at this point, in my opinion, we need to um, acknowledge and recognize that all of these factors are probably, although we know for sure, uh, 
are important in proprioception and in restoring postural control. So now I started delving deeper. What are each of these components, right? And then is it possible that those components can be restored? Now, some of the research actually showed that proprioception can improve. And I've got several of them, but most of those individuals just use balance exercises and in my opinion, just made assumptions. Mm -hmm. If we look at balance exercises, we can't just bluntly say it improves proprioception because it probably improves things like strength. And then by repeating the activity, yes, you're able to reproduce that activity uh, longer or with less perturbation uh, and so forth. So maybe strength is an important component here as well. And I'll delve into that a little bit, a little bit later. Now, other studies who did similar exercises, you know, stand on an inflatable disc, for example, uh -huh. showed no improvement pre-post balance, which they then called proprioception. So there are some studies that say, yep, balance exercises improve proprioception, balance exercises improve balance. And as some uh, researchers have found it doesn't prove it at all. It basically, mean, it basically means, you know, what did they test before, what did they test afterwards? And then what did they actually do as an intervention? And as and if you look at all the research, we're all over the freaking scale. So I, I was hoping that at least one group of researchers would consistently use the same modality and then test before and after, but they don't. So there's a lot of people that did like one study and they picked basically one exercise or multiple exercises and they're drawing all these conclusions and often, you know, the relationship is completely wrong. Now, now we need to look at balance and proprioception. What is the relationship? There's got to be somewhat of a relationship because within the literature, they talk the same language. So both discuss, for example, the sensory system, vestibular system, visual system, mechanoreceptor system. So basically, sensory organs getting information from our environment. Right now, that's why a lot of people struggle standing on one foot when they close their eyes. The visual system now cannot tell you where your body is in space. You need to now feel where your body is in space. Now, let's look at each of those systems. What's the job of the vestibular system? Well, number one, it gives us information about head linear acceleration. So a lot of our athletes need to quickly move their head from one to another direction. Let's say catching a basketball during a game. It also gives information about head rotation. So we're turning our head. It gives us information where our body is in space. And then head position. So, for example, I was very fortunate as a non-athletic trainer. I just basically got into the country from Belgium. I did an internship with the Seattle Mariners. And King Griffey Jr. was um, a young man that was, I think he was only 19 years old at that point. At uh, one moment, I saw him run in the outfield with a ball that was hit that was going to be over his head. And he basically turned around 180 degrees and sprinted to the outfield fence while looking up in the air. And then he caught the ball. 
By the way, very few people ever seen an outfielder do something like that. And when I asked him afterwards, this is something very unusual what you just did there. You turned your head away from the ball. It was yards away from where you were. And you were able to estimate where that ball's going to land. And you actually looked up in the air. A lot of people couldn't even do that without falling on their face. He said that he would recognize the ball at a very, very early position. And he said probably before it even makes contact with the bat. So some of our elite athletes, and baseball is just an example, can predict what is going to happen. So Dee and Kim and I are actually now looking at another phenomenon called the internal model of learning, which is basically a prediction model. Is it possible that we can improve that prediction model in our athletes and in our patients? That'd be very interesting, right? But time after time, I've worked with elite athletes that basically give me somewhat the same explanation. They recognize things before they, let's say, catch the ball, hit the tennis ball, and so forth. The next system we need to look into is the visual system, as I briefly mentioned already. What does that give us as information? Perception, results of actions and goals. So I throw a ball to a baseball hitter, and then the result is basically giving me information visually and then I will adapt maybe my arm position, release of the ball, even maybe foot position, and so forth. The next thing that's involved in the visual system is our peripheral vision related to environmental context, moving limbs, et cetera, et cetera, and fine analysis of a scene. So if you talk again to those elite athletes, they, when they're not in a slump, you know, baseball language, mm -hmm. uh, the ball becomes very small, they don't get distracted, and they basically can focus on what they're doing. A lot of coaches would love to tap into this, and are actually a lot of them are successful in doing this, but is it repetitively possible for an athlete that now loses that ability, the post-injured athlete, for us to help them to return to have that system work optimally? So a lot of things we need to consider when we discuss proprioception and discuss postural control. The next system is the mechanoreceptor system. We do a lot of work with that in our rehab. We stretch people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the last several years, it's uh, popular to have compression clothing on and so forth. And there is plenty of research that shows that actually might help to increase muscular stiffness, response time, et cetera, et cetera. So the skin and the receptors underneath it, all the way down, like I said, to the bone, give also our central nervous system information for physical deformation, skin pressure, stretching, posture, as also movement. But here's the problem with all these systems. They can be tricked. So you and I go on a fishing boat, right? We go for salmon now and I get seasick. Why is this? Because my visual system is getting information that is not consistent with my mechanoreceptor system. And if we're really in a storm, my visual system would also say, hey, you're getting all over the place. So we get seasick. 
Our body basically doesn't like this conflicting information, and it basically makes us sick. In the hope, this is a theory, that we get off the damn boat. And, <laughs> and you know, basically the system does not get disturbed in a negative way. We also know that if, if, if you and I get, get on a ship for multiple days, we get back on land, we got sea legs. Right? Mm -hmm. The first couple of steps on land, it's as if you're still on the boat. So the good news is our body can adapt to these challenging environments, and that adaptation will then continue on after we even don't get challenged anymore. So the problem is how can we now give our central nervous system a positive experience when we try to implement techniques to augment these uh, these systems. So in some postural control exhaustion include challenges to visual system, mechanoreceptor system, as also vestibular systems independently and collectively. Now, so of course, this is just a um, conclusion that I've made. I wouldn't say this is 100% scientific. So we should train the sensory system demands of the athletes and the patients that we rehab. So now, not only do we need to know somewhat of the biomechanics, joint position sense scenarios within the people that we rehab, we also need to be aware which sensory systems do they actually use predominantly a lot during their sport activities. So when I rehab a pole vaulter years ago, an elite pole vaulter, I have no clue what pole vaulting is all about. So. I need to communicate with coaches. What is this? How do you train this stuff, right? If I'm a novice pole vaulter, how do you teach me this stuff? And initially I thought, well, they kind of use somewhat of a system where the athlete, you know, bungee cord scenario where they hang up in the air, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but a lot of those coaches told me that is absolutely not true. They basically said, we teach them to run towards the pit with the pole and then we teach them to fall on the mat. And the rest, they'll figure it out once they're up in the air. So the visual system in this you know, sample is probably a lot more important for them to be rehabbed on because there is very little mechanoreceptor vestibular system information coming through at that point. So training your athletes specifically trying to bias some of the systems is probably important, and I have quite a bit of success with that. So, <clears throat> continue on now. If we look at the sensory system pathways, so okay, if we assume that the sensory system can improve, then how does that information get transferred over to our brain, central nervous system, and so forth? Well, what I found in the literature, there's two pathways how this occurs. It's in a feed-forward and feed-backward pathway. So we need to be able to set up our rehabilitation exercises to where our athletes and our patients get positive experiences and thereby positive feedback when they repeat the activities or start the activities we want them to do. And hopefully that'll make sense. Mm -hmm. Now, if, we look, if you look at those two concepts, the feedbackward pathway was going to help them fine-tune motion. So it basically involved in um, detailed motion. So it learns through detail. 
but it has electromechanical delay. So it's a slow learning process. That basically means, in my opinion, that we need to give them a lot of repetitions and actually give them only feedback after they repeated the activity several times on their own, trying to relearn through their senses without us constantly talking to them. Mm -hmm. In reality, I think in our rehab scenarios, in our performance scenarios, a lot of people just talk too much. <laughs> do this, do that. You know, suck in your belly button and do that with your shoulders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The challenge is we should try to create an exercise in an environment where self-learning occurs. And that's part of dynamic systems theory is that if the athlete can self-explore, the constraint theory often called as well, Learning is optimized faster, number one. Number two, the tension rate is better, and carryover effect of similar activities is better as well. So typically, you know, in our training room scenarios, when I was a student many years ago, we're just talking too much, mm -hmm. and we're correcting consistently. What we should have done is just say, do this and repeat it at least 15 times. Right. If you want to give it a number. If we want to, if we want to, if we work with an individual one-on-one, -on -one, then you know it's not a specific number. But then again, like I said before, I'm waiting for that associative phase of learning, their self-correction. Then I progress their exercise, which is often then challenging them at a higher level. Right. And then you basically tell them, "This is what I want you to practice now." The feed-forward pathway is basically, as some people refer to, as a reflexive pathway. So. This happened a lot faster. They're preparing themselves for something. And I think that's the phase we need to train first. An anticipated perturbation, then a non-anticipated perturbation. Now, if we consider those two pathways, we can already come up with two different exercise strategies. The first one I call a quiet stance. So the start of our... Uh, Exercises should be stand on one foot, and then if we want to augment the senses, we're going to make them close their eyes, we want to change the surface a little bit, barefooted, etc., etc. And that's typically an exercise that we start with with any population, and that's definitely one we should focus on. We work with elderly and so forth. Then ultimately, we need to progress it to challenging more of the systems, and we're become dynamic that is specifically specific to the sport as also uh, the non-sport if you work with non-athletes. Now, the next question we should ask ourselves is, can these receptors be stimulated, right? Remember earlier when I said, you know, the rehab folks think that we can restore damaged receptors mm -hmm. to our exercises, and then the performance population says, no, we're going to improve those receptors. Well, there's two more theories. One is called the, the label line theory. Basically says each receptor gets individual information, not, and the information doesn't come in from all the receptors at the same time. Theoretically, that means that each receptor should be trained or biased in our exercises. The other theory, which says this is absolutely nonsense, is called the ensemble French for together or togetherness coding theory. It basically says the receptors give information together, thereby isolating receptor training 
is impossible and actually should not be done. Now, so we, we have a lot of information already, right? right. We, have a lot of, we don't have a lot of evidence, but we have a lot of information. And I think at this point, we cannot ignore all this information. So I basically train them separately as also collectively. Now, to delve deeper, what the hell are those receptors? What are they? You know, and in our, let's say, motor control, motor learning class, we might have learned a little bit about it. But at least in my days, a lot of that stuff was just pure theory. It wasn't a lot of practical application to it. Well, if we look at just joint receptors, we have slow adapting and rapid adapting receptors. So an example is the Raffinia receptor endings. They're active during static joint positions, but not active when we move. And then we have Golgi tendon organ-like organ receptors. They're only active when we move, but not active when we're static. The Pacinian corpuscles are actually inactive during constant speed, but are active during only acceleration and deceleration. So let's say sprinting mm -hmm. <clears throat> and suddenly changing direction. Then we have the free nerve endings, which are active when subjected to damaging deformation. So this is typically now seen in uh, the maximum extent of the hamstring length during a hurdler jump, for example, uh, or getting close to the point where actually your athlete is going to damage tissue during their sport activity. And a lot of our athletes work this very fine line balance between my maximum hump jump height and me tearing my soleus, for example. Mm -hmm. So if the first theory that I already mentioned is correct, then we should expose our clients or patients or athletes to exercises that specifically bias those different receptors. So now we need to do things in static positions, oh. dynamic positions, accelerated, decelerated, and close to damaging situations, especially our elite athletes. Right. So acceleration, decelerations, and basically also work them, do exercises at their end range of motion. That's what right. I typically use. Now, is this actually possible, right? Get back to the first question. Can we train those receptors? So now we need to go back to the neuroscience and look at if we if we facilitate receptors to get activated, is it possible that that can change? So can we enhance the efficiency or the sensitivity of those receptors? Well, interestingly enough, and the strength coaches love this, <laughs> the only one I could find in the literature is muscle spindle sensitivity can be augmented, can be improved. How? Heavy weightlifting now unfortunately in the laboratory and there's very few studies by the way the sensitivity could be augmented through what they call measuring the h reflex now the h reflex is not a direct measurement of muscle spindle sensitivity so we can draw complete conclusions out of it but in a laboratory setting if we expose our laboratory individuals to isometric loads, 
which, you know, massive recruitment of, of uh, slow twitch, fast twitch fibers, et cetera, et cetera. And we increase the stiffness in, let's say, the bicep muscle. Then in the laboratory setting, that stiffness continues to be augmented for two hours or longer. But if you work with strong individuals, let's say bodybuilders is the prime example. I'm a bodybuilder. Imagine. <laughs> uh, if I don't train for 24 hours, the stiffness in my bicep is still there, right? Mm -hmm. The next morning I wake up and stand in front of a mirror and go, oh, yeah, still looking good, bicep. Now, let's say I don't train for 48 hours. It's still there, 72 hours. In some bodybuilders, it's still there. And so what I assume and what some other individuals assume, that probably that stiffness, that sensitivity can last for much longer than our laboratory two-hour setting. Gotcha. So maybe the most important component in restoring so-called balance, so-called proprioception, and actually postural control should be strength training. Now that's not a little mini band stuff. That's heavy lifting. Right. Now we can now manipulate what you refer to as heavy lifting. Because if we work with a rehab client, we obviously can do close to one RM max lifts. Right. But we can do sub-maximum loading, let's say 30% RM max, and do more repetitions without rest. And you know, all the all the Protocols are there, right? Look at the NSCA protocols and that stuff. So time under tension, which actually a lot of bodybuilders use when yep. they train, the multiple repetitions when so-called stiffness, fatigue, whatever you subjectively call what you feel, if we push that envelope, then we don't need to work with very heavy loads. We just need to do more reps and less rest in between. So we can... Definitely use that concept when in our rehab clientele, 30% RM max, maybe in the beginning 15% RM max. They just need to do more reps. Yeah. So our three sets of 15 repetitions, whoever came up with that, <laughs> you know, that we see in our training rooms and in our physical therapy clinics are not cutting the cheese here. Right. We need to learn more about what is strength training. So the muscle spindle is probably the most important factor right there, and most likely strength training is going to make a big difference. And I typically do this with my uh, rehab athlete population. Is I make them stand on one foot, close your eyes. They can do it for about 15 seconds or less. Then I make them grip the ground and do some isometric work with their legs, maybe a plank, although I'm not a big fan of the plank, but I won't get into that. <laughs> Here, I don't want to get in trouble uh, because it biases too much the back extensors. So in some of our population, yeah, they need more back extension stiffness, but right. not all of them. So right. exposing them to an isometric load and then retesting them, closing your eyes on one foot, often gives them a dramatic improvement in the amount of time that they can stand in that position. So it also is a little bit the hook on the worm for me. Uh, when I work with these really strong people, you know, they see this old guy walking in who doesn't look as strong as they are, and they often think, now, this guy is going to tell me how to do this. Come on, you're kidding me? So I make them often do this exercise to kind of also get them on my hook. Right. They start believing in 
some of the stuff that I do with them and compliance goes through the roof after that. So you've often used it, like I already said, kind of as a bait as well. Right. And then subjectively, you see a big change in how long they can stand on that one foot. Uh, so even the non-strong populations, you need to be able to get them in a position where they feel that subjective sensation and then see the objective change in standing on one foot. If that's, you know, if they're still in that phase of their rehab. Right. So the additional challenge is in the literature, how do we measure proprioception, right? Again, there, there's a lot of confusement. Number one, there's a lot of bias, and there's a lot of bad stuff going on. But there is some good literature as well in the last couple of years. So the things we need to keep in mind are things like threshold in, detective, in detecting passive motion without muscular contraction. Unfortunately, this requires equipment we're not going to have in our training room and in our clinic. This is basically our isokinetic equipment, which is tremendously expensive and rigged up to a point where it passively, very, very slowly, let's say, move your ankle. The individual gets uh, kind of a button in their hand and they push on it, they're blindfolded, when they feel their ankle moving. The next way of measuring it, again, only possible in a laboratory setting, is joint ankle reproduction task. Subjectively, we can do that a little bit with our goniometers and what I did with the tape mm -hmm. and the motion capture stuff. So it's a little bit simpler for us to apply. It's not very accurate, but at least it gives us a little bit of a way where we can retrain this joint angle reproduction. Force sense. Again, not very simple for us to do in our clinical setting. Velocity sense, same thing. And somatosensory evoked potential, which is basically somewhat of an EMG study. You stick needles in them. Again, just not very practical. But... Within the literature, that's what you will find, is that most of the ways you think might measure proprioception at this point, as far as I know, is impractical yeah. for us to use and or very expensive. Right. <clears throat> so by now, we should conclude that it's slow feasible, the feasibility is low to change muscle spindle sensitivity in the long term, mm -hmm. unless you get exposed to strength training on a regular basis. So I, especially we as athletic trainers, we don't work with sedentary populations. Right. We often do not work with individuals that have lost a lot of their muscle stiffness. We often don't work with, with individuals that have been immobilized for a long period of time. We often don't work with people with chronic pain and who've basically been actively immobilized, either psychologically, they're afraid to move, or they just can't move or they don't want to move because they have discomfort. So we need to create our own protocols around that, mm -hmm. we as athletic trainers. We need to come up with a system, and maybe it's already out there, I haven't found it, that we look very closely at time loss or time of inactivity in individuals that have a relatively high muscle spindle sensitivity. And I think once we figure that out, we'll be able to progress the rehabilitation programs faster. We probably are able to skip our first phases, which in reality are all PT protocols, right. uh, and go 
immediately into phases that are a lot more challenging because our individuals that we work with are just different. And especially when you work with the elite, you can make a change very quickly. Right. So if I have a podcast and there's a little video of me working with, um, uh, with a elite power lifter, okay. uh, Chris Duffin, he's yep. probably one of the top five strongest men in the world. And he allows me to talk about this with back pain. And basically by giving him one exercise, changing dynamic systems theory model, his attractor state from his back extensors to his actually his abdominals, his pain is instantaneously gone. I will definitely look that up and link that up in the notes. We also need to realize that pain is not equal to tissue damage. You know, that's been pounded in my head when I went to school, right? It's it's bad. Pain is bad. It's like this negative experience. Right. right. And the people we work with also need to understand the difference between pain and discomfort. Yep. You know, discomfort is not damaging. Like Chris, low back. Yeah, his back extensors are so tight, tremendous compressive forces on his spine. Yep. And he gets basically to the point where they can't contract any higher. That is uncomfortable, right? Even for a guy that is used to discomfort, right? It's not pain. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing damaged, right? We just need to try to change that central nervous system attractor state. And in his scenario, it's quite simple by making his abdominals stiffer. So, applying some of these strategies to linear athletes, Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters, swimmers, sprinters, yeah. are quite simple. Because they only move in one direction. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that makes it's it. move in multiple directions. Our soccer players, our basketball players, our rugby players, and so forth. It's a lot more challenging to work with them to change the attractor state. But anyhow, I don't want to get off on attractor state stuff, but it's directly related to this. Right. Well, I know we've gotten into some very deep stuff, and I want to be respectful of your time. And now I feel like I should go challenge all of my athletes in their rehab in a <laughs> way which is perfect um but as you had offered i would be all for doing around two when you're back in the states in a few couple weeks month or whenever you're back yeah that'd be great um like i said i'm flying on a travel trip right now um i'll be Bale, seattle beijing belgium greece beijing tokyo beijing uh, so <laughs> Yeah, once once the China uh, Spring Festival is over, which is over around April 1st, then I'm getting really crazy. So I started a uh, private school over there in China, uh, which is a four-year program. I go there uh, four times a year. It's a seven-day lecture, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, eight hours a day. Uh, Been fortunate to have some uh, young, some very talented young men and young women joining the academy it's a very small elite group uh and uh in four years they should be ready to make a difference in china awesome well if it works for you i will email you in a few weeks then just to have it sitting there to remind you when you land back in the u.s and hopefully i can chew on a bunch of the stuff that you gave in this episode and come back and i would love to get into the dynamic systems theory um, it's just something that I don't know that I've ever really been exposed to other than briefly looking at it. 
Yeah, it's perfect. So dynamic systems theory is something I ran into when I started looking at movement variability. Um, the whole thing with movement variability started after I started noticing a lot of uh, young professionals around me hanging their hat on things like the functional movement screen. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that's it's it's a bad thing, but they were basically um, concluding things out of the screen that was never the intent of the screen. Right. You know, basically they were, you know, making conclusions that if you can't squat this way, then it's wrong, and if you do can't do this that way, then it's wrong. And me working with, for example, Olympic weightlifters and powerlifters, you see them squat; they're totally different patterns. Yep. Now you're telling me that these elite individuals, one of them is doing it wrong and the other one is then doing it better. Uh, it just absolutely didn't make any sense to me. And so there, that was my first recognition uh, of variety needs to be normal. And thereby I started delving into the concept of movement variability, which is directly related to actually the dynamic systems theory and the attractor state. So training and injury attracts us to move in a real specific way. And then I found that over the years of experience working with, I don't know, hundreds, if maybe a thousand uh, of my patients and athletes, that those attractor states per body area that got hurt or activity or sport is actually quite predictable. And so it makes it very simple to recognize some of those patterns and then quite simple to correct them. And then that's what most people give me as a comment when they take my workshop. They say, oh my goodness, it's actually so simple. Why did nobody else think about this? Right. Well, you know, I, I actually like simplicity. Uh, so you don't, you don't see me doing things with crazy expensive equipment or whatever. It's often simple things like mini band and a body blade and which most, uh, rehab settings and 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 performance and personal training settings already have available for sure because the, the client or the patient needs to repeat the pattern it's not going to work when you just make them do it for a half or three times a week uh, they need to retrain their brain to right. change their attractor state especially if the problem is more chronic then the attractor well within that literature is deep thereby it's harder to change the attractor state Again, I would say the power of the athletic trainer that is uh, right there and then when the injury occurs and right there and then can make a huge impact within 24 hours, 48 hours. Uh, so the, the athlete or the patient does not get into a position where the well gets deeper and deeper and deeper right. or a well gets created. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, because of the time difference, it might be a little tough to do a podcast while I'm overseas. But yeah, no, I mean, we can definitely wait till you get back. I, I, I don't mind. It just needs to be, you know, practical for sure. So, uh, more than anything else. So, yeah, Joe, I I really appreciate this. Yeah, uh, I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. And if there's anybody in your area that'd be interested to have me come over and do a workshop, uh, please give them my information. Yeah, we'd be. I'd be I'd be really excited to uh, come uh, and do some stuff in your area. Awesome. Well, before I talk to you again, tra safe travels on all your different voyages you got coming up, and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you very much, Joe. All right, thank you.